Hello, how's the form? Welcome to the World and Union, the Bozzari Rugby Podcast. Morris Brosnan here, and I'm delighted to be joined by the Noel Reed of Irish Rugby. It's Mr. PJ Brown. PJ, welcome back. Morris, thank you for having me today. We're cracking show coming up today. We're going to look back at the Champions Cup final um, with Charlie Morgan of The Telegraph, who can provide some real insight into the workings that went on there. We're going to look ahead to the Pro 14 semi-finals on this weekend, and we'll also reflect on the Munster coaching situation and what is looking like a pretty interesting time at the province there. But firstly, PJ, this was the only one place to start, is that it's a pretty sad time for the 12 counties of Leinster, I suppose. I, I don't think it'd be too far to call it a tragedy, really, Morris. Um, I, I think everyone knows what we're talking about. Uh, there was like big event there at the weekend. Um, Ranla's favourite fondue <laughs> restaurant, Edelweiss, <laughs> is moving to Sligo. <laughs> I mean, what, what a double blow for Leinster fans. At the uh, weekend, yeah. Like, I mean, they've lost, they, they lose, they were hoping to win a record fifth uh, Champions Cup. Uh, they don't beaten by a really good Saracens team I mean they're probably thinking at least we can now go home to South Dublin and drown our sorrows in melted cheese <laughs> <laughs> but they can't have you ever had fondue I uh, no, I haven't I, have to, I actually wasn't aware that there was a category of fondue restaurants within Dublin that uh, it's it probably the finest well I, it's actually it's the only fondue I've ever had. <laughs> I, I don't really have much to kind of uh, judge it against but yeah, it's where Leinster fans are the losers here. Connacht fans are the winners. Get if wherever the hell this restaurant moves to in Sligo, get yourself there, Connacht fans, so to comfort yourselves with melted cheese. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's uh, I highly recommend the truffle uh, fondue. It's like it's like expert level fondue, but just just go just go straight to the top, like. Yeah, yeah, because I'd seen. Um Andy McGeady tweeted out that South Dublin is silent because of the, the loss um, and that the organic quinoa fields are going to go untilled. Um, that latters are being ordered with full fat milk and that toast is being ordered without smashed avocado. But I didn't realise that it was worse than that. It actually got worse that they're also been deprived of their precious fondue. I mean, Andy didn't even like realize i suppose he didn't realize or else it the news been, hadn't it, broken yeah, yeah. It, it would be been top of the list they're they're really like yeah <laughs> we might as well talk about some rugby um the game itself was firstly a brilliant game i think that's probably the first place to start i thought saracens were awesome it's really hard to even find the chink and kind of their armor in the way they played in saying that Lens were probably five percent off their best, and in a game like that, that that's ultimately what makes the biggest difference, I suppose. I think it was it was talk about going into it how, like the odd mistake on either side might would kind of end up deciding it, but it ultimately it was it was kind of Leinster needed to be perfect, and they weren't. There, there was there was far too many mistakes, and they there were moments in the game if if they hadn't made those those mistakes, I maybe they could have won it. But they need, yeah, they needed to be perfect and they weren't. Yeah, so on that team, right, I guess the two kind of standout moments, two glare moments, is one, the kick before half time and what that meant. That's been kind of widely discussed already. I have kind of a separate take to everybody else on that. I mean, I think, like, ultimately, if you, you know, if you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And, you know, we go back to the semi final against Toulouse, the game in the Aviva. I remember being at that game and watching them play four minutes deep in at half time. Half time, the clock went to red. They played for four minutes deep, and James Lowe 
got over to score a try in the corner. Now, in the end, it actually was disallowed for a penalty in the run-up to that. Um, probably harshly enough, it was when he, he bulldozed Colby and got down in, in, in the corner. But like that's the kind of game they kind of play. It's obviously kind of a tactic. I think it was really obvious that it was a call for McGrath to kick that ball because you can hear... We might try and get a side up, a piece up on site about this during the week. You can hear a call twice on the ref mic when I watched this game back this morning. And there's a definite call there. And in response to that, Devin Toner steps up into the line. So he knows he's not receiving the ball. It kind of was his body language made it that he was clearly going to chase it. So it wasn't McGrath you know, acting individually. It was clearly kind of a, a team call. It just didn't work out. I think they, Johnny Sexton explained after the game the idea was to try and get somebody like Carney over Vinopola's head and win it back and maybe make it a two-score game. Um, it didn't work out, but I think I mean that's that has served them well in the past. And the fact that it didn't play off in that one occasion, it, it's there's a bang of hindsight analysis off that. The one that is probably most glaring is straight away in the second half of the game tied, and Ringros has a four men outside him before v two overlap, and he doesn't pass it. And I mean, you know, it's it's hard to boil down sports to one division moments, but if you're going to take one, that was it. That was about your chance, really. Mm. Uh, on on the the McGrath kick, it, what what was more theme? What's bad about that was the kick chase. Yeah, the it execution, was, it, exactly. It, it yeah. was absolutely, the kick, the kick, it was a decent kick. What was, it was just like, they, it was, the kick chase was so pedestrian. It was, it was piss poor. Like, it was, it was like they were strolling down Grafton Street heading to Donny and Nesbitt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And when, you know, clearly this is a call. I, it, it just, it seemed so unusual that they didn't go hard after they were jogging down there like yeah and sometimes you know i think there's too much weight sometimes put in you know escorts and saracen's ability to you know escort and you know the way they kind of slowly linger across the line which they definitely do and it's you know it's arguably illegal certain certainly sometimes it is illegal but at the same time like you can still you know interject some sort of pace and kind of ferocity into your your chase at the time james Lowe was brilliant for doing it he wasn't it was it wasn't on his wing so he wasn't chasing at the time but that that wasn't there like it was the execution of it that fell down more so than the than the idea i think there were four players going after that ball like you can't escort all of them yeah I mean, like it, none of them got there in time i think it was it, it might have been venipola who caught the ball yeah yeah and then they, they went a penalty it was really clever with the way he w- worked that penalty like made sure Kenny was underneath him make sure he wasn't trying to get the ball over and back he was pushing the ball down into Kenny. he made it like p- painted a picture for the referee where the referee kind of had to give a penalty mm. the the ring rush chance i think is like so there's kind of two ways of looking at it either a he didn't back his forwards handling ability on the outside but at the same time you've got a four-man overlap and you just need to shift the ball outside it was just it was a mistake kind of unbecoming with his ability i suppose and it was one that proves really really costly even the fact that i mean on both sides of that play when even when it switched back on the other side he couldn't shift the ball out wide it was williams came in and again going back to you know painting a picture williams jackal there probably not illegal like his ha- his hands are on the deck but when you paint that picture of you know when like you see the jacker here and his arse up high in the background and it looks like he's supporting his body weight for all in the world like they're the ones that the referee are more inclined to let allow it's the ones where you know it's the chest is on the the tackled player and mm. it's so blatantly obvious that he's off his feet that you're more li- likely to get pinged but when it's that kind of you know up and over the ball it makes it look better and so i i wouldn't have a an issue necessarily with that call really i think from you know you'd make a split second decision there it was just the fact that what came before proved so costly it was such a vital tackle from from williams i mean and when it came back across it this is going on from the ring rose definitely should have gone wide there i it's someone of such vision like he it, it seems strange that there's four players outside you and you choose to use none of them like uh, that was very strange but when it came back across like about a minute later that williams tackle was so vital if he'd been like a split second slower 
uh, Henshaw was in because yeah. there were ringers would have played him in and he was in and that that was a badly managed probably 10 or so minutes from may, maybe a little bit more maybe 12 minutes or so from Leinster the, the f- maybe 5 or 6 minutes before half time and the up until then the 7 or 8 minutes after half time where there were vital moments huge moments that kind of that swung the game in Saracen's favour and I suppose like just go you know sometimes I think people can boil things down too simplistic when they analyse these kind of games and look at you know a 10 point score differential but I mean there's fine margins in these kind of games like if you know you're probably unlucky not to be leading going into half time you come out in the second half and just to go back to that point about fine margins I mean look at Jordan Armour's decision for the try just before half time to shoot in off his wing there I mean that's what Williams did but just you have to, if you make that read you have to make the tackle like you're, it's, it's, it's an all or nothing approach uh, Williams did it Armour was a split second too late and you know it's the difference between a try and no try it's the exact same scenario like a winger biting in as opposed to coming on a soft drift on the outside simultaneously if you look at the first two um, 21 ent- entries into 22 in the second half for Leinster. Like Leinster, two 22 entries, kicked to the corner, and then they ran that play off the lineup where it's Toner off the top, Lowe comes in off his wing, he makes the first carry, the second carry is Healy, the third carry is Furlong, Furlong gets turned over by Skelton, and they, they come away with nothing. As opposed to, if you look at the, from the very first 22 entry by Saracens, like their intent was so, so obvious. So you got a scenario where it was Barrett crashing down the middle, like making making yards, um, he went wide to Vinopola, like, no surprise, two best ball carriers making yards. Then it was Williams on the outside, the one where James Lowe slipped on the ground, he cut back on the inside. Arguably should have been given a line-up to Saracens there and he threw the ball back, it actually came off Carney's leg, but they gave the ball to Leinster. But that, from, like, from in, in terms of fine margins, they were gaining yards off every single play, it was really fast, getting their best ball carriers on the ball, and Leinster just didn't, couldn't do that, like, they couldn't grind their way into the game in the same manner. I, I kind of felt like there was an ominous feeling from about it was Saracen's first attack I think it was about six or seven minutes and every they won every collision that they went forward with like every ball and even though Leinster then went up 10-0 that was still in the back of your head like it was like like if they they, they they're not out of this game by any means at all like yeah just finally um, I think it's actually funny you know you, you spoke on that team right about kind of making use of your chances when you look at um well, Alan Quinlan and Alan Quinlan's covered kind of I think Alan Quinlan is a brilliant co-commentator I think he really gives a really good insight and I think he when he called the Vinopola defensive efforts we might talk to this about Charlie in a second but you know Vinopola like making reads in the f- defence like Vinopola is so much more you can talk all you want about like sheer size and strength and that kind of power and things like that but Vinopola is also a really intelligent rugby mm. player you saw that in kind of the reads he made in terms of his interceptions um, his kind of really kind of clever work at the breakdown in terms of you know I, I, I really think it's such a hard thing to do when you got Vinopola in over jackling a ball and Will Skelton kind of anchoring him at the back you know that kind of thing he does where he grabs onto his back but it's such an effective tactic that they kind of they make it so so hard for you to even imagine a way that you're going to kind of overcome them and I think um one of the things that I kind of really like about, I suppose, rugby covering in general. It's funny, I don't know where you watched this game. I watched it back on Virgin Media this morning and I thought that kind of team was really well highlighted throughout that Saracens not only were kind of out-muscling uh, Leinster, but there was a kind of an element of them being a bit more astute as well. Just before I address the, the, the BT, I, I was actually watching on BT. But okay. But talking about like uh, Vinopola, there was, and his kind of intelligence, the, 
the interception of Sexton. I mean, it was about 62 minutes. Yeah. And yeah. That, was a, that was a huge moment because Leinster had a really good attacking position. Uh, they were around the Saracens 22, but they were also a man down at the time. So you were, they were keep, they were, they had pressure on Saracens. They were, they were Fardy was about going to be in the bin for another eight minutes, I think. And Venapola intercepts the ball. Five minutes later, they're up the other end of the pitch. They score the try, which ends up deciding the game. And Vinopola carrying off the back and effective running through four people. Mm. You just can't match that. Like you can't match whatever about the. You can maybe try and outthink that, but that's just that's what Leo Cullen spoke about after the game. Like you can't match that in terms of physically either. Speaking of like the the BT coverage, I it, it does have good elements. There are good elements in that. Like they do try to do like a little bit more analysis. Yeah, which you, I like. Yeah, which you will see. Actually, it was before the game they were showing a little bit of. Uh, Sexton's kind of wraparounds and okay, how yeah. they work. They did the usual kind of uh, how they work with. They had uh, Newcastle Falcons uh, academy players on the pitch, and it was Austin Healy. But it kind of, it felt like a little bit remedial. Maybe maybe that's just be, be, as in maybe it was for the the fan who's just tuning in for the day, you know, who's will show them this, or maybe it was just I felt this way because you're so familiar with how sex how Sexton works. That's a really interesting topic, actually, right? Because I think from a from a consumer's perspective, the divulging of rights for the Championship is an absolute disaster because you need you know various broadcasters to actually watch every game within the tournament. But at simultaneously, there are kind of like small benefits in the fact that you they it, you know they set up their stock very early, so you knew what you were getting. Like BT made it very clear that they were going to try and be this kind of analysis-driven kind of you know insight, telling you something you don't necessarily already know about the game show, and that's why. You know, they incorporate people like O'Driscoll and Warburton, who are, I think, are really, really good at doing that. Like that's their bread and butter, for want of a better phrase. Whereas, I think Virgin, maybe this is because it's more in the Irish sphere. Virgin's a bit more about kind of like setting teams and you know opinion-led stuff, and mm. people like Matt Williams, maybe who you know will set out kind of like I I wouldn't make it's I'm not in a critical manner, but kind of hot takes that they'll kind of trash out amongst themselves, and you can see like it's kind of funny to see sometimes uh, Shane Horgan does try and introduce that kind of analysis bit for, but for the main it's a bit more kind of debate and kind of topic driven I do like that though because kind of like brought up on how analysis is done on TV and yeah, yeah. how Irish sport is kind of covered in general in that it is about the arguments that are kind of happen on TV between these kind of personalities and be like you know we seem like Dumphy and we had like George Hook for kind of years these kind of like abrasive kind of personalities and BT does have personalities. They've they've got they, well, they've got big names, but they seem to play it like a little bit safe sometimes, and it doesn't have that kind of same entertainment factor that you probably have on, like on Virgin now, where like, those lads aren't afraid to have an argument. They aren't afraid to disagree with each other. And BT, it feels like sometimes they are. Like they're they're kind of worried about where it's going to go. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree. I think that you know the re- if you look at this as a a season review, what B two do really well is that analysis driven stuff. But they don't necessarily want to engage with the kind of the bigger teams that come out of it. And because of that, that's why you get a scenario like what happened with Vinopola, where they were just like laughably ignorant to the issue and kind of unwilling to really engage with it. As opposed to maybe Channel Four, who are totally willing to give kind of the scope to people to come and talk about it. And I think it was really clear that they'd given a huge amount of thought to that. And that's why you saw somebody like Thomas come on and articulate a view kind of. About why it was so you know appalling as opposed and then you know virgin media simultaneously 
kind of have a presenter who really facilitates that well and kind of withdraws that out of him while simultaneously kind of getting out of the way and that kind of opens itself up to not you know, necessarily the most insightful analysis but certainly kind of entertaining discussion people take punditry too serious sometimes like it's okay for it just to be entertaining do you know mm. it doesn't have to be like it doesn't have to revolutionise your world yeah I mean like maybe it's Craig Doyle is what the main guy on BT he's he probably doesn't have as many journalistic instincts as yeah uh, that's it yeah. as they say like Joe Malloy on, yeah. on, on kind of Virgin that he can maybe he's just he's are they too concerned with like okay I gotta hit this I gotta hit this I gotta hit this or maybe Joe Malloy kind of thinks this is interesting let's let's just take the conversation this way absolutely yeah we're gonna chat about um, Munster and look ahead to the Pro 14 semi-finals this weekend in a couple of minutes but I caught up with Charlie Morgan of the Telegraph to reflect on this game and uh, on this theme of analysis discuss maybe the more intricacies of this game <laughs> is knowing that a tomato is a fruit wisdom is knowing not to put in a fruit salad <laughs> you like potato and I like potato you like tomato and I like tomato potato potato tomato tomato oh let's call the whole thing off alright I'm delighted to say we're joined now by the Telegraph Charlie and Morgan Charlie how's the form? alright thanks for having me yeah really good thank you I suppose coming into this game, Charlie, it was billed as the legacy-defining game. You know, it was two heavyweights going to the tag to be the best team in Europe. Are Saracens now that team? I, th- I think um, I think they've had to. They'll take a lot of satisfaction from this. I think, and that and that is framed by their opponents and framed by how much respect they had for Leinster. I think going into it, um, it was unarguable that both sides were the best problem solvers with the most depth and the most ideas as to how they could go about um, working out results and working out opposition and kind of teasing their way out of tough situations during games and I think I think the game itself was a microcosm of that and a kind of endorsement of how good Saracens have become and how much depth they've got to, to that game plan because you know they're staring down the barrel at 10-0 down with Michael uh, Vinopolo who's been arguably the most consistent um, and most influential performer in English rugby for sort of the last 18 months with him gone, with Michael Rhodes going before kickoff, um, who's, who's kind of this underrated guy that ties their pack together and gives them real balance. They're up against it, but they, they work their way out of the situation. They're kind of they're probably indebted to a couple of uncharacteristic Leinster errors and just things where they kind of a few really big momentum shifts either side of half time that we'll probably we can talk about later, but. Yeah, I think I think I think they're worthy winners overall, and I think I think a source that um, I think Russ Petty mentioned that I think they won all they won all of these games by over ten points, and that's not, that could be no um, that's no fluke. Yeah, we might talk about the game in Tricolies itself in a second, but just on Saracens itself, right? Because they're such a kind of an interesting proposition in terms of as a club and their kind of culture and legacy, but. A lot of the game itself, or even the reaction to it, has been about the physicality of Saracens and about the fact that they kind of outmost those Leinster. And I'm kind of curious to know what you think about that idea which you just spoke about there, about kind of outworking Leinster as well. Because I think as somebody like like Vinopola, um, even your piece today, where you looked at, you know, he wasn't just like a stronger rugby player. At times, he's actually a really intelligent rugby player too. The reads he made on the, the intercepts was, was one example. You know, t- the timing of his jackling, even the, what would you call it, like, 
clever ways that he gets in the way of players trying to clear out rooks and just slows down the ball in a second as well. Like there seems to be a real kind of intelligence about this team that might be a tad underappreciated. I, yeah, I totally agree. I think that they're really, really streetwise as well as being really, obviously really tough, obviously really imposing the little little details that they get so right. So things like, um, I think there are a lot of kind of underappreciated facets about how Billy Winipola plays. I think just pigeonholing is kind of this big ball carrier just is, you're not hitting, you're not hitting, um, you're hitting a tiny amount of what he's about. So little things like lifting the ball up off the, off the deck um, when their carriers kind of pierce the game line. Brad Barrett did it a little bit. Um, Billy Winipola did it a little bit. And um, that either gives Ben Spencer that extra Split second to, so he doesn't have to bend. He can just whip the pass away from sort of knee height, or a couple of times it gives you're not popping the ball off the floor, but you're holding it there so that a forward can take it on. So you're you're taking out the risk of the little pop pass off the floor, but you're still giving that that little um, opportunity um, to kind of eat up another few meters. Make sure it's quick ball, and um, and you and you're playing against a kind of a scrambling a scrambling defense. Tiny things like their, 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 that, that, their short passing game between their forwards seems to be really sick. We know about the contested balls, you know, the high high kicking uh, stuff that was so that was so on point against Munster. That that the kind of effect of that perhaps diminished slightly against Leinster, just because Leinster was slightly more accurate there. But yeah, I mean, there there are so many different dimensions to them. They, their muscle and their and their size is, is one thing, but. You know they they can they can slip in and out of structure. They're brilliant in the in the transition situations that are now so important. You know there are they've had to evolve. You know we'll talk about I think we'll talk about Mark McCall later and how he's how he's managed to do that. Um, but they've had to evolve because you know the the competition in Europe has uh, the standard of their the guys challenging for that top spot has, has gone up and they've had to respond to that and they've had to keep ahead of the competition as well. And they've been thinking about ways to do that tactically. And um and it's kind of come to fruition now. I'm I'm interested that idea right about kind of looking at Saracens as a, as a prospect because from an opposition's perspective, a lot of people look at them and think you know Leinster might try have to outmuscle them or even outthink them. And the thing is that in certain times they actually try to do that. Like you saw, um Sexton kind of running that or Ringrose running that hard line. Sexton coming out the back and trying to chip over the top, but Vinopola made the read to block it down. Um, you saw that kind of the way they tried to get after them in terms of Luke McGrath's um, box kicking and kind of trying to get quick kick chases and catch the ball over Vinopola's head. Again, he took that ball and broke him down. Like from a from an opponent's perspective and what it kind of means for rugby, what do you see as being the brand of rugby that needs to match a team like Saracens? We know what was, what was quite interesting was that I'd say the area of Lentz's game that, that was kind of um, most markedly below their best was their ball movement. So, Let's take a couple of passages, um, unfortunately both um, centering on Gary Ringrose. I think he's a fantastic player. He's now up there with well 15 centres, but a couple of times he was off the off the pace, for example, was the pass to Conan that uh, saw Lazowski smash Conan and then the next and the next uh, next phase Vincent Cott won the turnover when um, Sexton held on to the ball and there's a really nice breakdown on three Red Kings. Uh, Tom Savage done an awesome job with that. Just, just kind of... Um, identifying the tiny, tiny bits that need to be on point to kind of break down thousands because when when George Cruz rushed out to make that read and make that hit on Johnny Sexton, one more pass, one more pass goes to hand, Leinster, Leinster in the clear. And then obviously you've got the, in after half time, 
you've got the moment where Gehring Rhodes hold, holds on to the ball and cuts back inside when there's a four on two. It's not it's not a gimme. It's not definitely a try, but it just goes. To show, I think I think the template to be, template to beating Saracen there might not be one. You know, it's not an exact science, but if you look at all the all the sides that are kind of um, that are really pushing the envelope and really at the top of their game throughout the world, so the likes of the Crusaders and obviously the All Blacks, their ball movement is just so crisp and so good. And the way they move the ball to space, however they do it, kick passing or just making sure that they're tight five forwards, they're not limited by the kind of by the handling of their tight five forwards. In fact, the skills of their tight five forwards enhance them because they're so so crisp. I, th- I think that's where we're. I think that's that's a comment on on the world game probably that. Um, if you're not limited by your type 5 forwards, if those guys can, can help you move the ball to space, whether in transition situations, whether in phase play, whether they can get those tip-ons on the game line to just to just gather momentum, I think I think that's where you've got to look to improve to kind of to be the best side, certainly. On that team of, the, of them being the best side, I mean, their players are kind of held in really high regard kind of globally right now. But a man who probably is a tad underappreciated definitely in Ireland is Mark McCall. Um, the last time Irish rugby saw him was when he was at Ulster and he resigned with them, you know, bottom of the Magnus League and kind of struggling in Europe. Since then, he was with Cast, has progressed to Saracens and has built the best team in Europe kind of quietly there and done it without any really limelight. Like, he never seems to command anything. He speaks really well after games without necessarily saying anything too controversial either. Um, his own kind of standing in the UK, I'm interested in. I mean, he's never mentioned in terms of being connected with any jobs, big jobs in Ireland when they come become available. And yet he seems to be kind of quietly going about his business in a really impressive fashion there. A couple, a couple of years ago, I think quietly, is, you've hit the nail on the head. He's unassuming. He's seriously articulate. Though. So listen, so listening to him after the game is, is after any game is a real education. It, it gives, he's really generous with the insight he gives into... Uh, the collective psyche of Saracens, what they've been thinking about, and how they how they've tried to evolve. So, a really good example of, of that after this weekend's game was how he said that actually, when they won, when Saracens won the double in, in 2016, there was a sense of anti-climax because they thought, you know, we we can't just measure ourselves by trophies because it's going to feel empty pretty quickly. You know, what do you, what do you think the what are, you, what are you working towards the month after, or what are you working towards the next preseason? You can't you can't just click your fingers and, and be in May. So they they've kind of switched this focus now to continual improvement in the small things, sort of individually, I think, and, and, and as a collective too. Which sounds like a cliche, and you always hear hear players talk about, oh, you know, just looking to improve every day. But he identified that that was the only reason, that was the only way, sorry, to keep or the best way to keep that motivation within the squad. Now. He's that unassuming nature means that sometimes that as far as profile, the guys in in his wider coaching team kind of maybe get more profile and maybe get linked um, by the media to, to to these bigger jobs. So, for example, Adam Sanderson um, has been highly regarded, and then if you go back sort of along a kind of almost like the coaching tree under Brendan Venter at Saracens, you've got Paul Gustard, you've got Andy Farrell, who have risen kind of two to test uh, to test involvement after being involved in his in his Saracen setup. Now, after um, sort of last summer, there was a lot of chat. A lot we you know we were asking him during Saracen's preseason media sessions whether he was interested in the in the um, in the England stuff. And, and it's almost like the the Rob Baxter situation at Exeter. Sometimes 
people are just more suited to the you know the day to day day to day club life. And he signed on. I signed on for a few years. I think beyond the next World Cup, so maybe twenty twenty one. I think maybe even longer than that. Um, but the whole team is the whole that whole person's coaching team is signed on. So he, he clearly wants to build something special and and you know build on what he has done already. And even from a like looking at it from an Irish perspective, I mean, this is three European crowns in four seasons for for McCall and Saracens. Do you see this legacy continuing? Like, can they maintain this? Yeah, I uh, Saracens, yeah. yeah, certainly. I mean, so look at their team on their team on Saturday. Nick Ezekwe is uh, twenty one, I think, and he's won a he's won an England cap, and he found himself um, sort of this season outside of that gun twenty three. So because Will Skelton has come on um, and um, his fitness levels have improved and he's, he's just been this carrying weapon off the bench. Nick Ezekwe was found himself... Nick Ezekwe played... I think he was playing A-team a couple of weeks ago. You know, he's an England international. And then below him, you've got a guy called Joel Koku who's um, starring for England under-20s um, and has been at an England training camp under age Jones. That's just in the type five. Max Malins is um, one of these guys that is going to probably in a couple of years face face a decision whether to stay at stay at Saracens and, and kind of work really hard to get that 23 and that place in, the, in their guns European 23 or, or move on where it'll be the number one choice um, at another club it I, I, can, I certainly can see it you know they've, they've just hit on a formula where it's a really aspirational clearly a really aspirational environment and it's and it's first off with these young these young guys coming through because they want they want a taste of what the senior guys are doing both within Saracens winning all these trophies and, and you know creating memories as they love to kind of talk about but also outside the game and, and how they're doing kind of how the individuals are asserting themselves on test rugby as well. <clears throat> Just before you go on the on the team of styles, I suppose there's kind of an interesting team developing. Um, I know you were at the obviously at the Monster game when you saw what Saracens did there, kind of really effectively dismantling them. Given what happened at the weekend, and even if you go back a couple of months now when England played Ireland, and in all kind of games, Ireland kind of seemed to struggle to Irish teams struggle to match English teams, and then especially when they went behind, they couldn't claw back at all. And I'm kind of wondering why do you think it is that there definitely seems to be a team that against the same opposition, the same kind of key figures like Farrell and Atoje, Irish teams really struggle to match that. It's, it's difficult, isn't it? There's got to be, I think, when you talk about the, the, the relentlessness of that defence, the aggression of that defence requires a team who are kind of trying to break it down or, or chasing a team against it to take, not necessarily take risks, but to, to, to have that real trust to throw passes that, that they're not 100% sure on almost, if that makes sense. So, you know, I keep going back, keep going back to that. I thought the game swung on, on the... Um, that clattering cruise tackle on on Sexton when uh, Gary Rose wasn't quite in Sexton's eye line, so he, so he held on to the ball. And there's so many occasions like watching back over the game where they were getting into Sexton's eye line, and even as a player as experienced as, as Johnny Sexton is, was holding onto the ball quite a lot and 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 cutting back inside. And it, that seemed, that felt so interesting to me because I, I just think. You have you have to take risks as far as you know your ball movement against such aggressive defences. Now, Leinster did enough to win that game. They really did. You know, if they score after half time, even if they score, but you know, in that, in that 
um, their chances that you're pressing on the edge of the Saracen 22 when, when Bulletin Polo got that first interception, they were doing enough, you know, they were getting in good, they were getting in good, um, in good positions. It's, it's such a tough one to answer. I think, um, that's a, that's a really interesting trend. And um, it'll be interesting to see how, how coaches look to work that out. It might just be a mindset thing. And just finally, it's really interesting you pointed that team about kind of taking risks because I just remember um, that analysis piece that you did with Mario Torje and he kind of talked about, he went into this idea of risk-reward strategies. And it's also been a criticism of Joe Schmidt teams kind of recently, this idea that maybe they're adverse to taking risks and that they kind of take the low percentage opportunities and trying to control possession which is something that Munster do as well and Leinster seems to do at the weekend and I suppose in an, an overall context and in a World Cup year that maybe it's hints at the fact that all three teams or certainly two of them will have to learn to be a bit more expansive if they want to win these kind of games Yeah I, I think the, there's certainly that that um, you mentioned with Mario it was just it was talking about how he gave away three penalties in that, in that Munster game and I, one one passage we spoke about was the one he gave away, I think, to make it uh, the monster kick to make it nine six, and it's just how he he totally thought that he was in a right, he was in a strong position to win a turnover, but he messed it up, and he said, "Look, I'd, I'd have backed myself again. I'd have probably done it again in the moment." So, I think um, Saracens ended up with a higher penalty uh, count than Leinster at, at the weekend, but I think that almost. You can talk about how that shows kind of ill-discipline, but it also shows the freedom to be as as aggressive as they are because they get a lot of rewards out of that aggression. And it's the same with offloading. You know, Joe Schmidt's sides are um, you know are known for having low low offload counts, low penalty counts. Now, at some stage, they might have to free up the shackles a bit, and you, and you never know whether you know somebody as diligent as Joe Schmidt. There's nothing to say that he wasn't holding something back during the Six Nations, you know. So I think we kind of can hold our breath on that one, but it's certainly interesting to kind of, it'll be interesting to watch as that, as the World Cup comes into view with the warm up games before it, whether there's a little bit of loosening the shackles in, in that regard. Yeah, for sure. It's a, it's a trend that people should definitely keep an eye on over the couple of months. Uh, Charlie, thanks a minute for joining us today. No worries at all. Thanks for having me. Brilliant stuff from Charlie there. It's probably. Um, kind of a really refreshing approach to see journalists and even players willing to do the type of thing that Charlie got to do with Mario Toje and sit down and do like a video analysis article and look through key moments I mean I, I it's kind of a, a new look but the fact that Mario Toje is comfortable enough to look at clips from a game and kind of divulge into them and simultaneously journalists get the access to that is kind of a it's kind of a nice development isn't it mm, definitely it's, it's kind of unusual to see it from players as well I'd love to see it in other sports, particularly in actually GA in Ireland, but uh, it's all, I mean, so much of that is, is dependent on access, I guess. Mm. This weekend's a really interesting game, probably a season-defining game in a lot of ways for both teams in that a loss will, for Leinster, will make this look like a very disappointing season. For Munster, a win could paper over a lot of cracks this season. Before we talk about the actual game, I think it's worth reflecting on the coaching situation because... Mm. They're going to have to replace at least two coaches, potentially three, if a report in the Olympic leader is to be believed, which suggests PJ Wilson, their certain conditioning coach, is on his way to bat. Um, personally, I think the last one of the key things about this that I don't know has it been reflected on enough is the fact that it's not only is it losing coaches, but it's losing monster bred coaches, and that the you know there's all sport, sport is so much about perception and the continued idea that maybe there's a disconnect between Munster and their base would never be as strong if those replacements aren't you know Munster connected I, 
maybe, perhaps, but if now Munster go on to be successful, if they hire coaches who, and they end up winning trophies over the next two years, I don't think people, will they be bothered about that? Will, will that be a concern? I think we may like look back on this period, if it works out for Van Gran as being, this is, they were ruthless and perhaps, and this is where it kind of was a big turning point for them. Or if it doesn't, and it, Van Gran ends up leaving in a couple of years and they haven't won trophies, it, this is where it turns sour. I mean, it, it'll, those are two of the narratives I can see in my, I, I can see coming. Yeah, I mean, like, it's funny, right? Because you look at Munster's coaching scenario, so there's been a lot of names suggested, the likes of Mike Ruddock and Noel McNamara both hinted at it. I actually think from a pure, like, if you look at this in a totally cold, you know, cynical way, it's really hard to understand why Felix Jones and Jerry Fanway both decided to turn down contracts. Then suddenly, Sunday, I was reading Sunday papers yesterday and Hugh Fardy in the Daily Mail, who's obviously from Cork and will have a pretty good connection there, wrote that, and this is a direct quote, Munster sources suggest the pair's existing contracts were far from lucrative in the first place. One insider describes them as yellow pack deals and that the new offers were not much of an improvement. Now, if that's true, and I mean, there's a constant focus on budget restraints on the provinces outside of Leinster in recent years. If that's true, Maybe you need that monster connection from just purely because financially there's not enough to lure somebody in that you need that kind of you know pull at their heartstrings and that that might actually be a factor in terms of looking at like somebody like Mike Ruddock who's involved in the AIL and obviously knows Irish rugby really really well or Noel McNamara who's you know had did some development work at Leinster had a really good year with the under twenties interesting that those two names being suggested are both also names who are very well known for developing players as well as coaching players. I mean. Like- Flannery and Jones are both kind of learning on the job. Essentially, yeah. like they, they both came out of playing and into coaching straight away. Maybe, I mean, maybe that's reflected in their pay. I'm guessing. I mean, they don't have many, many years kind of level of like, coaching point, experience. Yeah. I mean, although like Flannery, I mean, the, the best time you hear Flannery doing those, what I, I'd say annoy him having to go on like BT and kind of talk answer questions during a game but he's also always like really oh, insightful brilliant, yeah. he, he does seem like he's there's a good coach I mean like there's the, but maybe it's kind of viewed as right now we need something else and the people who've been mentioned have a lot more experience than Jones and Flannery to, to, I suppose just finally on this right if I'm looking at this from a from a monster perspective I think the, the fact that you could introduce kind of a broad range of coaching is actually like there needs to be an element of trying to turn this into a positive. So you look at what Lancer did, like Lancer's organisation is such that the day John Fogarty leaves, effectively in the same statement or just a couple hours later, they allow, announce McBride is coming. Like they, That's kind of level of detail that they would have in approaching this. If Munster have been blindsided by this news, it still kind of takes a quick reaction and trying to get it betting in because the lack of continuity has has to have been a problem. Like you, you look at if you trace back the last seven years, I mean, there's obviously problems with their out half, and that's a key function of that. But even still, you know, Rob Penny got the blame because he tried to play wingers out wide, and that was you know supposedly wrong for their attacking game plan. Then it was Tony McGahan's fault. Then it was Simon Mannix's fault. Then it was Anthony Foley's fault. Then Razzie Rasmus kind of steadied that ship. Now it's Felix Jones' fault. Like. The, that kind of lack of continuity I think especially if you're trying to embed kind of certain systems and a way of playing like it's really hard to judge an attack coach because you know there's a certain standard that you would expect of a of a forwards coach like you expect them to win their long, win their scores win their lines. It, that's black and white there's no re- reading into that but an attack coach is a subordinate like he is playing within the framework of a head coach who has his own idea of how he wants to play and, and he's kind of coaching within that so it's, it's, it's re- I think it's harder than some people have pretended it to be to determine 
how successful Jones was or not because mm. he was you know in reality he was implementing somebody else's system he didn't have you know it'd be very rare that he would have 100% control of what he was actually coaching there and then added on to that the fact that it was leaked that Rob Howley was coming in as well that I just wonder about the level of control he had and whether or not that might have influenced the decision as well when when I heard it they were both leaving I mean a friend did say to me that oh, yeah but it's their decision but it was it, it did seem like well there's, there's way more to this and the Howley news did make you think well they're well definitely Jones he's being demoted here he's, he's, he's no longer going to be the attack coach which was his title he's it's going to be a different role here and I presume like where he is in his career, he, he didn't want to be stepping down. Like, he didn't want to be taking a step down. And I know you're re- reading between lines here, but I would presume that's why they, they decided to leave. It's maybe, maybe I mean, like money as well. I pres- presume possibly part of that. Looking ahead to this weekend, Friday night, we've got Glasgow Warriors against Ulster. Um, all this talk about Munster, the season isn't over. They are going to play Leinster on Saturday in the ODS at three o'clock. Um, the ideal scenario was that we could get an All-Irish final on Saturday the 25th of May in Celtic Park but Ulster playing against the Glasgow team who've won 20 of their last 22 games at home on that pitch a team who've got a nice break who probably are really sore about the fact about how their Champions Cup ended and the manner of the Saracens loss it's hard to see them winning that game hard to see Ulster yeah. winning that game yeah yeah, definitely it's a really tough game but I mean there is this is going, could be Rory Best's final game could be that Darren Kay's final game. I mean, they're not going to want that. And you've got like, this is a big game for all those young players at Ulster as well. And it's so many exciting young players as well. There's also, a, there's something nice about the fact that A, I think Dan McFarlane and old Glasgow inside out, both from his work with Edinburgh and from Scotland. Um, I also think that there's something nice about the fact that this is effectively a free shot, regardless of what happens this weekend for Ulster, as opposed to maybe the other semi-final, which we'll talk about in a second. This is a free shot. I mean, their season has been a success. Mm. Whether or not they win this game, you know, they've already achieved. And this is kind of, it's. It, uh, there's no pressure in a performance like that. Um, speaking of pressure, there's pressure on both the Irish teams mm. uh, on Saturday, both in terms of Munster trying to kind of, you know, finish the season on a high note and also Leinster trying to back back after, I mean, whatever about just in terms of mentally, physically, what must have been an incredibly draining game. Definitely. Um, I mean, I don't think there'd be a tougher opponent to face than Saracens going into this game. But, I mean, you remember like last year, uh, after winning the Honey, winning the Champions Cup, they turned around two weeks later and they beat Scarlets. I mean, I don't think Leinster... Are go- and that, that was a tough game as well. That was a really kind of draining game also um, against uh, Racing. Uh, I, I don't think they're going to be... They're still going to be hungry and they're going to want to be... Of course, they're going to be, want to beat Munster. You'd expect a huge improvement from Munster given, I suppose, how the manner of the quarterfinal went. Also, that Joey Carberry is back. Keith Ayers looks like he's back in training as well. Um, the two of them are going to be huge in terms of this theme that we've been talking about even on this podcast in terms of their attacking shape and, and what that means. Based off that, I think Munster probably have a much better chance than some people might have given them credit for. Probably, I mean, like just having Carberry on the pitch is huge. I mean, it's he, he's your... Like they use an American term is like your your franchise player. He's like he he's like along with Van Gran, he has signed that contract until twenty twenty two. He he's like he changes everything for Munster. I think here, um, definitely more than um, like playing uh, Tyler Blaindal. I mean, he's pretty disappointing. I think o- yeah. overall. I mean, Carberry is such more creative, incisive kind of player, and Munster. This is. 
Munster are looking to win their first trophy in eight years. This is it's hard to underestimate. I mean, it, you can't underestimate how big a game this is, I think, for those players. They want a trophy, badly. That's a that's a nice note to set this game up on, I think. Um, we're out of time. Uh, another powerful performance by the uber-consistent PJ Brown on, on this podcast. Um, and what is your third cap this year? I, I believe so. On the rugby podcast, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So are you, you're also very versatile as well, which obviously helps. I'm starting to establish myself as a regular. Yeah. <laughs> um, hopefully that would have provided some solace for Leinster fans devastated after losing the Champions Cup final and uh, their beloved fondue restaurant. We'll be back next week to reflect on both of those semifinals and look at the kind of season as a whole. Maybe we'll do some sort of review there. But in the meantime, take it easy. <laughs> <laughs>